and welcome to our first 2022 episode of Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Larison, and we are excited to begin the new year with you as we continue our efforts to expose the rot of the war machine in Washington and work towards helping Americans take back control of their foreign policy and national security and to avoid more senseless, endless wars by the handmaidens of the military industrial complex in Washington. Today, we will be interviewing my Quincy Institute colleague, Sarang Shadore. But first, let's talk about the protests happening in Iraq right now. Iraqis and Iranians are marking the second anniversary of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the popular commander of the Iran Quds Force on January 3rd, 2020. The killing, ordered by the Trump administration, followed attacks on a U.S. base in December 20, on December 27th, 2019, which killed an American contractor. The U.S. retaliated with strikes on targets in Iraq and Syria, and the U.S. embassy in Iraq was breached by protesters days later. The killing of Soleimani was justified by the Trump administration, who claimed the U.S. was under imminent threat of attack. There has been no real airing of the issue, and Congress has, has been all but impotent in holding the executive branch accountable for the action which was carried out without their knowledge or authorization. Dan, what kind of impact did this assassination have on US-Iran relations? And are we still feeling the reverberations today? Yeah, I think we are still seeing the, the effects of it uh, even now. Uh, I mean, you talk about the, the commemorations that are happening in Iraq. Uh, uh, Soleimani and, and then Mohandas, the, the Iraqi militia leader that was also killed alongside him, uh, have been uh, effectively turned into martyrs in the eyes of uh, many uh, people in Iraq and many people in Iran. And so they've been uh, in that way elevated uh, and, and turned into symbols of uh, what, what they would call their resistance. And so, you know, I, I think that as a, is a political mistake uh, in and of itself. And we also see how it's having effects on uh, the security of U.S. troops. U.S. troops have continued to come under attack from uh, either Iraqi militias or Iranian-aligned militias, either in Iraq or Syria. Uh, and in fact, uh, to mark the the anniversary of the assassination, uh, there have been drone attacks, uh, I think, on the Baghdad airport and also on the Al-Assad base uh, where U.S. troops are housed, uh, which was also the base that was targeted by the uh, Iranian missile attack a few days after the assassination in 2020. And so uh, th this is an ongoing problem where we will continue to see consequences of this. Uh, this was not a, a, a one-off success the way that the Trump administration tried to present it. Uh, it was, in fact, uh, a very dangerous gamble. And when we were extremely lucky that it didn't turn into something much worse than it did. Uh, and really, the, the only reason that there wasn't a larger conflict created by this assassination is that the Iranian missiles didn't kill anybody uh, at the Al-Assad base, uh, but they did injure uh, over 100 American personnel, uh, many of them very seriously with traumatic brain injuries. Uh, and uh, dozens of these personnel have been since been awarded the Purple Heart uh, in recognition of the fact that they were uh, wounded in the line of duty. So it's uh, th those, are, those are costs that we, I think a lot of people have forgotten or been allowed to forget uh, but there, there's something we need to, to keep in mind uh, as to how uh, really dangerous and reckless that decision was. Uh, not to mention illegal, but that's you know that's a 
we could go on about that for some time. Uh, I think one of the the more disturbing legacies of that decision uh, is in the area of war powers, where the president simply decided, uh, basically on a whim, to commit an act of war against another country without bothering to even mention it to Congress. And and there's been basically no uh, practical consequences uh, either either for him or uh, for the powers of the presidency. Uh, essentially, the president tried or, or you know risked starting a war with another country uh, on his own arbitrary decision, uh, and and there is no uh, there have basically been no uh, repercussions for that. There, there's been no cost for that, and so I think that that paves the way for presidents to do this again down the road if they if they so choose and it, it illustrates how much power has been ceded to the executive in this country and, and how dangerous that is especially when you have someone as reckless as trump uh in that position yeah and i you know you mentioned the accountability issue and the lack thereof we had a piece up at responsible statecraft by matthew petty just a few months ago in november um, who had been tipped off, I don't remember by who, uh, but he found out that two months after uh, the, um, the assassination, the House Foreign Affairs Committee had planned to grill him. You know, the Democrats leading that committee right. had planned to grill him, uh, meaning, I'm sorry, uh, Mike Pompeo, then Secretary of State, about the assassination and what authority he had to do it um, and on what justification uh, he was basing, you know, that particular decision. And the, the, the hearing started and it all fell apart. Most of the Democrats decided they'd rather talk about COVID uh, and not in, in, in the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, and not the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. So it is absolutely clear that there are no, there is nobody, and I and I and I and I say that a little loosely because we know that there are people like Rand Paul, for example, and some others on the on the Democratic side who have questioned the authority of the assassination operation. Uh, but on the most part, they have been drowned out by both Democrats and Republicans who have have basically ceded. Um, this authority over to the executive branch and and this being one of the most salient examples of that. Um, they carried out the assassination of another uh, nation's leaders, a leadership uh, position at one of the in, 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 in a very high level popular general. It'd be like taking out James Mattis, you know, like Iran, you know, assassinating James Mattis in a third country. So let's let's compare that. Let's be honest. And uh, yet there there was very little blowback. I do remember there was a hearing afterwards in which Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, Republican, was very upset that they had been uh, basically misled, uh, that they, they had uh, been sort of, um, I forget the word, he stymied, um, but he came out of the hearing saying this was the worst um, national security briefing he had ever witnessed. And he was pretty pissed off, um, but not much came from it though, um, other than some juicy headlines. Right, but it, but that, that was, uh, one example of how the administration tried to to spin uh, Congress and the public on this decision to to 
conduct the assassination, uh, which was basically to lie through their teeth about why they had done it. Uh, first, you had the the imminent threat lie, uh, which was uh, promoted early on by Pompeo, uh, by Trump. Uh, and then when that fell apart, because, of course, there was no imminent threat, and it didn't actually make sense to target Soleimani, even if there had been, because he's not the operator, right? He's not, he's not the one actually carrying out the attack, so killing him doesn't stop it if there was a bomb, but there wasn't. Uh, then they reverted to this ridiculous line of restoring deterrence. So we're restoring deterrence to, to discourage Iraqi militias and, and their Iranian sponsors from launching attacks on bases where U.S. troops are located. And what we saw in, in, as a result of the assassination is that those attacks continued and in some cases uh, became more severe. So every justification that was offered for why this was done uh, fell apart under the slightest of scrutiny. Right. And, uh, and so it's, it's, yeah, it is, it is disturbing that Congress has basically just let it go because here you have open and case where the president took us to the brain of war, lied about the reason for it, uh, and, and got a lot of American soldiers uh, pretty badly injured. And, and we should add, uh, when we talk about these injuries, uh, traumatic brain injuries are no joke. You know, these are debilitating, lifelong injuries. Many of these people are no longer able to serve in the military. Yeah. Many of these people cannot conduct, uh, cannot have a normal life anymore. Uh, they they suffer from uh, from pain. They suffer from dizziness. They suffer from uh, constant uh, memory loss. Uh, the, the, their lives, in many respects, have been ruined by this. And so we we can't forget what happened to them and why it happened. And it basically happened because the president felt like he needed, uh, he needed some in, in foreign policy uh, in his final year and also uh, needed to uh, sort of rally his forces uh, in connection with his impeachment, uh, which was happening right around the same time. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when, when, we, when we think about uh, sort of wag the dog scenarios, uh, this is uh, as clear an example as you're likely to find. Yeah. And I remember at the time, you know, uh, irregardless of any of the legal justifications they had been throwing around at the time, the media spin uh, from the the right side of the dial, the hawkish right side of the dial, was that we that the, the, the assassination was putting Iran in its place, that it was stopping any further aggression and basically putting uh, the regime on notice that they couldn't get away with their aggressive tactics against uh, the U.S. bases or the coalition bases in and and not only in Iraq but other other activities that they had been uh, blamed for, uh, whether it be uh, the bombing of Saudi facilities uh, that previous summer uh, and uh, the Houthi actions in in Yemen, and so the spin was that we were showing. Iran, who is boss, and that they only responded to, um, you know, uh, to force into strength. And so it didn't matter who was notified when and what, you know, legal uh, justification they had. This was Trump showing, you know, the Iranians who's boss. And, you know, and so, so what I remember hearing from Hawks in the media at the time was, see, it stopped any further aggression. 
And so, so basically you could say, well, see, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't had any major attack on our U.S. forces. There hasn't been. So you could say, well, you can't, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's basically a hypothetical that there would have been some big attack by Iran if we hadn't interceded with this serious blow or decapitation of their, of their leadership. But I believe that you and I would probably argue that, you know, we've, we've seen a number of attacks on our, on uh, us troops in Iran by Iranian militias, whether or not they're directed by the regime, that's a question in itself. But the fact is that Iran is still, we're still in this very heightened tension with Iran, whether or not Qasem Soleimani uh, died or not, um, if anything, it's gotten worse. Right. Well, and you see some hawks even now defending the decision, saying that you know the world the world is a safer place, uh, supposedly yeah. because Soleimani is dead, and even that's not entirely clear because you see how Iran's control over its uh, militia clients uh, has weakened with Soleimani's death, so that now they're they're more uh, independent actors and they can take actions uh, without Iranian approval. So you know you have them trying to assassinate the Iraqi prime minister. We talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, where in the past the uh, the IRGC would not have permitted them to carry out such an action, or would not have would have actively discouraged them from doing that because of the political fallout. Uh, but now uh, they don't actually have that uh, control to to pull them back, and so you you have a, a lot more armed actors. Uh, Operating more freely, uh, maybe more recklessly than they used to, and and it's important to to come back to one other thing is that all of these attacks that had been happening over the last few years weren't happening before the economic war in Iran began, and and the, all of all of the uh, crisis situations that have uh, come about in the last three years uh, between the U.S. and Iran, uh, either in Iraq or elsewhere, have come out in direct response uh, to the maximum pressure campaign that the U.S. has been pursuing and, and, is still, and still has in place right now. And I think we would find if, if that maximum pressure campaign went away, if it stopped, uh, a lot of these tensions would also uh, be brought back down. And so that's, that's the, the long-term solution uh, if you want to, to find one. Uh, otherwise, we will continue to have these tit-for-tat strikes uh, as long as U.S. troops are there, and apparently U.S. troops are going to stay there indefinitely, albeit uh, not as combat troops uh, because we've we've relabeled them, but they're they're still in combat whether we call them that or not. And welcome to Sarang Shadore. He is the Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute and Senior Research Analyst at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also my colleague at the Quincy Institute. His areas of research and analysis are geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy, climate, security, with a special emphasis on Asia. 
Sarang has collaborated and published with multiple organizations, including the Brookings Institution, Center for Strategic and International Studies, Council of Foreign Relations, Council on Strategic Risks, Oxford Analytica, Stimson Center, UK Ministry of Defense, and more. And he's published very widely uh, in journals, edited volumes, media outlets, uh, and most recently on responsible statecraft. And in that article, and you know, welcome, Sarang, to our show. <laughs> thank, um, thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So um, recently, like I said, you had published an article, very interesting, on responsible statecraft about what seems to be the United States push and pressure of its allies and partners uh, in East Asia and Southeast Asia as well to sort of join on with its containment strategy on China. And you specifically write about a uh, recently retired U.S. commander in Korea, Gener General Robert Abrams, um, who attracted some criticism uh, in it from, you know, what he had said in a recent interview, uh, asserting that new war plans with South Korea, our ally, uh, should include China as a target. And this seems to be all in line with this pressure that we're putting on our allies, that they have to choose sides. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about uh, Abrams' comments, also comments um, by other uh, you know, administration officials, current officials, um, and in general about this pressure and, and why it may not be such a good idea. Yes. Uh, so. The most recent episode or incident is really a part of a pattern. Uh, and, and just to, to stay on the South Korea question for, for a couple of minutes, uh, this is an informal uh, interview that General Robert Abrams, who retired in July as the US uh, Forces Commander in South Korea, gave to the Voice of America, where he was quite candid, of course, speaking as a private citizen, which he stressed that he wasn't speaking on behalf of the US government. But nevertheless, he made some pointed remarks on uh, several areas. But the area that I focused on in my piece was uh, his reference to the fact that uh, U.S.-South uh, Korea joined war plans, which have been a part of uh, the alliance ever since the alliance was formed in the wake of the, the Korea War in 1950. Uh, these war plans need to be updated, need need a new version. And this is something that the U.S. has been pushing South Korea uh, recently, and the South Koreans agreed to that uh, with General Austin's visit, which he, which he applauded. But then he added some detail to that. He said this updating needs to focus uh, on North Korea, obviously, which is a traditional focus of the war plans, but also additionally on China, which he pointed to as an emerging and rising threat and uh, that South Korea needs to play a role on the China question, and not just the North Korea question. So, so this element of the US uh, prioritization of South Korea on not just focusing on the North Korean uh, challenge, but also pivoting to the China question is, is, is quite significant and has been actually growing in terms of the emphasis uh, that the US has been placing on the alliance. This is. Uh, General Abrams speaking uh, as a private citizen, but also U.S. government officials, for example, uh, 
Undersecretary Colin Carl had also made uh, more oblique references to emerging challenges and how the U.S.-South Korea alliance needs to start focusing on those. Uh, so there's a there's a trail here of uh, the U.S. telling South Korea that we uh, we want you to do more. Uh, we want you to focus in on on the Chinese question. And indeed, there's also been, as we know, in the past. Uh, sort of urging of South Korea to join or at least associate with the Quad. Uh, indeed, South Korea participated uh, in a meeting uh, with the Quad, and the Quad, of course, being a four-nation compact that uh, includes the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia. And that, again, although not stated explicitly, is focused on countering and containing China. So there was pressure on South Korea to join the Quad, at least associate with it. South Korea did join a couple of meetings of what was termed as Quad Plus. It was focused only on health and the pandemic, and China was not a focus of the meeting. On that condition or under, under that format, South Korea participated. But it's generally been pushing back against this sort of pressure. The current South Korean government is not uh, in, in favor of going too far in that direction. But uh, clearly, the pressure is there, and it's likely going to likely going to build up. So, what's been the reaction? I mean, so we're putting all this pressure on. So, what's been the reaction? Um, I guess, firstly, from the South Koreans, but some of these other partners and allies in the region, whether it be Quad or AUKUS or whatever, um, how are they feeling about um, this this kind of uh, diplomacy, quote unquote, that we've been exerting on them? Right. So, so this is a part of a pattern in which we are uh, going across the board in Asia, really. And Asia, of course, is a very diverse continent with a very di different set, a diverse set of partners and allies. So at one end, you have Australia and Japan and indeed South Korea, which are treaty allies. So the U.S. is committed to defending them uh, as they are committed to uh, defending the U.S., although it works more the other way around. Uh, and this is a part of post-World War II arrangements. There are also other allies in this category that are less, let's say, uh, the alliance is less deep. It doesn't uh, include nuclear extended deterrence, which are Thailand and, and the Philippines. But beyond that, the U.S. has uh, some sort of security arrangements or, or relations with a number of countries in the region, including Singapore, and Malaysia and India and others. And all of these were formed either during the Cold War or soon after that as a part of the US just being the unipolar dominant player in Asia. All of this, of course, China's rise has meant that the US is now emphasizing that these countries not just have these bilateral arrangements, but start joining together start joining together in something, not quite a NATO. I don't think that that whole question is a red herring. I don't think the goal is to form a NATO at all. Uh, in fact, a nation NATO would have certain disadvantages for the U.S. Uh, but the goal here is to have all of these allies and partners, A, step up much more on the focus on China. And here, Japan and Australia are the most willing, and Taiwan, obviously, which is not a formal ally, but is a security partner in this sort of gray space governed by the Taiwan Relations Act. So these three countries are more 
willing to cooperate on China containment. Uh, on the other hand, the rest of Asia, which is most of Asia, is not on board on this. In fact, actively resists in many cases being including or, included or corralled uh, into this sort of an arrangement. So you've had, for example, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, countries, smaller countries like Bangladesh and South Asia, or Thailand, indeed, it's a, Thailand has taken a very middle sort of course towards the US-China rivalry. All of these countries don't see it in their interest to be a part of a new Cold War or indeed help fuel this new Cold War. If anything, they want to actually reverse and, and reduce the extent of this Cold War. So the US is knocking on a lot of doors, but it's actually not moving too many of them towards where it uh, would like uh, them to be. Absolutely. And thanks for coming on, Sarang. We really appreciate having you on the show. Um, and, sure. and this, uh, what you're talking about in terms of uh, this pressure being brought on all of these different countries uh, illustrates one of the weaknesses of the U.S. approach uh, to the whole region, uh, which has been criticized as being military first with too little attention paid to other elements of our foreign policy. Um, uh, do you agree with that assessment? It is a military first or security first approach. And what do you that the U.S. start doing that it has been neglecting so far? The, the rhetoric is actually more than military. So there's a lot of wordplay here, Word wordplay about rules-based order and about standards and about uh, you know freedom of navigation and things of that sort that are that sound like good things that sound like they're about broad developmental or creating communities of peace and prosperity. But when you look look on the ground as to what actually the U.S. is able to do or is actually doing in terms of material uh, effects, it's mostly military. It's about ramping up military exercises. It's about uh, pacts like AUKUS, which are very explicitly military between Australia, the UK, and the US for building nuclear fuel subs for deterrence purposes. And of course, for ramping up the relationship with India on the military front quite substantially. So the problem is, while the talk is that of broader questions, uh, such as bringing development, infrastructure, vaccines, and so forth to the region, the heart uh, and the will of Washington seems to be entirely a very kinetic, hardware-oriented uh, space. And one reason may be, A, one is that the Pentagon is just uh, disproportionately powerful in Washington. I mean, it drives a money trail, as, as both of you have, have highlighted in your previous episodes. It's just really, really dominant. But the other reason is that the U.S. doesn't uh, have a game in Asia that it seems to be able to put together on the economic and other fronts. Indeed, climate change, things like the environmental challenge. Uh, these are very serious issues in Asia where the Asians are looking for help and indeed look up to countries that are more advanced or are more wealthy to work with them. And that actually includes China. It's not just the U.S. and Japan that they have in mind. So what the region would like is indeed for the U.S. to be involved. We need to be involved in the region more than before. Uh, they would like us to be involved in terms of investment and trade more. So not go towards protectionism and sort of, uh, you know, closing markets, but actually go the other direction so that there is mutual prosperity. This was a U.S. calling card through the 90s and 2000s. The other side that they would like the U.S. to 
involve itself is climate change and looking at these transnational threats, including uh, issues like the pandemic, which has been a big issue in Southeast Asia, particularly, and uh, the region is suffering quite a lot. And here, the U.S., again, has talked a lot of bringing vaccines to the region, has done some donations. But again, here, the, the talk is much more than the actual delivery. So the U.S. can do, to answer your second part of your question, the U.S. needs to pivot away from this hard kinetic focus, alliance building, whether you call it an alliance or call it something else, that's what's going on. Uh, and this focus on phone ops, freedom of navigation operations, the focus on exercises and sail-throughs, focus on access agreements for military bases or, or similar types of structures, all of this needs to be uh, you know, not emphasized and reversed. Instead, the US needs to really think hard about what sort of economic, environmental, health, and infrastructural game it can bring to town, working with other countries in the region, and in some cases, uh, working with China. Uh, indeed, some issues like climate change require the cooperation of China because it, it has dams and rivers upstream. It's a major player which has state capacity to, to bring to bear, and there are natural disasters. It also knows the region in, in some sense uh, better than the U.S. So in, in in some of these areas, there's no reason not to include China. Other areas, it may not include China. But regardless, there needs to be a very different kind of a policy that focus on, focuses on non-military aspects of uh, of the region. Right. I, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and lo looking back over the first year of the Biden administration's performance uh, in uh, in the region, especially Southeast Asia, uh, how do you judge their performance? Uh, what, uh, what what were some promising signs from them? What what uh, do you think they got wrong? I would say that uh, there's a lot more wrong than right. Um, mm -hmm. The whole Indo-Pacific strategy that the Trump administration started and the Biden administration in some ways has has made it stronger is centered on on balancing and containment. And that is really the thrust of the U.S. policy on the ground. Now, having said that, the rhetoric provides a off-ramp because the rhetoric is broader than, than, and in fact, we don't call it containment. That's a taboo word in Washington, but that's what's going on. The, the rhetoric is, is very much a positive developmental rhetoric. Now, if, if the U.S. wants to take an off-ramp because this strategy isn't working, then it has created that rhetoric to a pathway to do that. And it needs to walk the talk. It needs to deliver on some of these big sounding initiatives like vaccines and infrastructure. It needs to include uh, countries in, in these initiatives and include countries like China. And it also needs to uh, work with regional organizations such as ASEAN, which uh, again, the US has dropped the ball on. There's a lot of talk on centering ASEAN, but in effect, some of the early meetings of ASEAN, the US didn't even show up. Now there's been some visits, uh, like Secretary Blinken, Vice President Harris have been to the region. But again, what concrete initiatives have come out of it is a question mark. Were these visits intended to simply pressure countries in private meetings to join the containment brigade, or were they actually a conversation? Uh, I don't think they were as much as a, a conversation as uh, they could have been. So mostly uh, drop the ball. Some signs that there is some belated realization that 
Southeast Asia in particular is, uh, is not really interested. And hopefully that becomes the focus in 2022. And, and when looking ahead into 2022, we, we started with South Korea at the beginning of the episode, and I'll uh, finish with another question about the South Korean presidential election coming up in March. Uh, current polling puts Democratic Party's Lee Jae-myung in the lead as the opposition camp has stumbled in recent weeks. Uh, if he ends up winning, uh, do you think that would create an opening for renewed engagement with North Korea and possibly a revival of the diplomacy we saw in the last few years? Yes, it could. And the, the biggest challenge between the U.S., uh, the, the, the Korea question is really between the U.S. and North Korea. The divide is deep. Uh, the distrust is deep. Also, the policy that we have adopted with North Korea has been uh, very harsh, and there hasn't been the, the sort of uh, incentives uh, that need to be there. Denuclearization is a great goal to have, but in the short term, when a country like North Korea, with its uh, very oppressive and pangard regime, looks around and sees the examples of those that denuclearized or did not take the nuclear path and what happened to them in the Middle East, uh, it, it can't be blamed for saying, you know what, we don't want to give up these, uh, these toys uh, right now. So uh, there's a lot of distrust. Uh, the South Koreans under the current government want uh, to uh, go for the end of war declaration with North Korea, which the U.S. is inching towards supporting. The latest reports say that the U.S. is, is coming on board. We have to see where we are at on that. So I think there's a lot the U.S. can do in terms of first having these symbolic things done like the end of war declaration, but also then going back and not just waiting for the North Koreans to show up, but, but actually going back to uh, the sort of engagement that actually you saw with President Trump, although it failed, there was kind of a high level, uh, you know, just kind of cutting the Gordian knot type of initiative. Let's just go and meet the guy and, and strike a deal. Now, that may not work, but... That sort of a bold approach has to be uh, undertaken. And of course, I, I will stress again that putting conditionalities on South Korea, on joining the Chinese containment cap and so forth, if that's happening behind closed doors, should certainly not be pursued. Well, Sarong, I, we've run out of time, but I realized that we hadn't asked you about your other area of expertise, which would be India and China relations and how that is affected by uh, U.S. pressure through the Quad and vis-a-vis -vis, um, India's um, you know, positioning. So I would love for you to come back at some point and we can extend this conversation further out because, I mean, you have a lot to say on, on those issues as well. So. Um, but thank you for joining us on uh, Crashing the War Party this week and our first uh, episode for 2022. So this is a very good omen. I think we have a lot to talk about in the future. And thanks for, for launching us into the new year. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Daniel. And it's been, a, it's been great being on the show. And yes, absolutely. Look forward to those conversations uh, down the road. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.